Chapter Thirty Three of Kit and Kitty by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty Three Urgent Measures. Miss Parslow, although she pretended to be rough and to love dogs better than the human race, for which she could give fifty reasons, was as truly soft of heart as the gentlest woman that ever shed a tear. She kept her own history to herself, and it never struck me that she had any, that is to say, as concerning us men, who are always supposed to be, but are not always the side to be blamed, when things go amiss in the matter of sweethearting. She had passed through some trouble in her early days, as I found out long afterwards, but had not been soured thereby any more than a river has been poisoned by its tumbles in the hills. The spell of Kitty's beauty and true goodness fell upon her. At first she strove hard to make light of her, and then pretended still to do so when the effort was in vain. But in three days' time it was all over, and I felt that with all my claims of kindred, and the proud parcelow extract of tea in my veins, I was chiefly regarded as Kitty's sweetheart. It was, Where is Kitty? What would Kitty like for dinner? Did Kitty tell you what she thought of this parasol? Tell Kitty I am waiting for her down the garden, and so on until I began to smile, and to fear that I should never have my Kitty to myself. And the beauty of it was that Miss Parslow seemed to think that I was not so attentive as I should be to Miss Fairthorne. What did you mean by carrying on as you did with that girl, Sally Chalker? She inquired one day in a very stern voice when I had only asked Miss Chalker if she was fond of roses. Are you such an oaf as to think that Sally Chalker is fit to wipe the shoes of Kitty Fairthorne? And if it is her money that tempts you, remember that her father is a most determined man, and there used to be such a thing as honor among young men. What will Mr. Henderson say when I tell him, as I shall at the first opportunity, that you take advantage of being on the spot and try to cut him out with his precious Sally? And I believe that he really is attached to her. There is no end of the bubbles that ladies blow when they once begin to dabble in love affairs. They never can let well alone, and they have such a knack of setting one another's hackles up that when I hear now of any match being off, where I knew that the young people loved each other, I never inquire about stern parents, but I ask who the sisters and female cousins are. Even Kitty, the best and most sensible girl that ever wore a bonnet, began to think at last that there must be something in all this rubbish. I observed that she colored and glanced at me whenever Miss Chalker's name came up, as it did pretty often, entirely through my aunt, who would toss it about as a dog throws a bone when he has exhausted all its grease. And I used to look down, as if I were thinking very deeply, perhaps she would love me more if she grew jealous. Then she began to sigh, softly at first, and not enough for me to be sure of it, but by and by more deeply, as she found me too polite to be aware of this exertion of an undoubted private right. And she used to say, Oh, I do admire her so much. I think she is so lovely. Don't you quite agree with me, Kit? And I used to say, Most perfect. Can there be any doubt about it? And then she would not look at me, perhaps for half an hour. I knew that this was very wrong of me, as wrong as well could be, 
and I used to steal a glance at Kitty when she was not watching and ask myself if any man with two eyes in his head could turn them twice on Sally Chalker after such a view as that. However, I did not say so, for I felt that my darling should know better. And if she chose to be like that, why, she must until she came to reason, and that was her place more than mine, but I could not bear to hear her sigh. Miss Parslow rather enjoyed this business, which was a great deal worse of her than anything that I did, for she herself had set it going with no consideration for my feelings and no right whatever, and I think that she ought to have healed the mischief, which she could have done at any moment, whereas she pretended not to see it, although she was much too sharp for that. However, it could not go on long, and I had made up my mind to clear it up when I was saved the trouble. For as I sat in my favorite place with the lovely valley before me and the sun sinking into a bed of roses far beyond the Surrey hills, I heard the little pit-a-pat that was dearer than my pulse to me, and down the winding walk came Kitty carrying an ugly yellow book. She had no hat on, and her hair was tied back as if it had been troubling her, and as soon as she saw me she turned away her head and hastily passed her hand over her cheeks as if to be sure that they were dry. Then she looked at me bravely, though her mouth was twitching, and said, "'Oh, will you do it for me, if you please?' "'Do what?' I asked very reasonably, though I began to guess what she was thinking of, for the ugly book was a railway guide. "'Miss Parslow told me to ask you. She cannot make it out any more than I can. It is very stupid, of course, but she says that she never met a woman who could make out Bradshaw, and she would strictly avoid her if she ever did.' "'What is it I am to make out? "'We can't get to Sunbury by any line, my darling.' "'When I called her that, her dear eyes shone, "'but she went on as if she were correcting them. "'What I want to make out is a good quick train "'without any extra fare to pay from London to Glasgow, "'and it must arrive by daylight, "'though I suppose it would have to start at night for that, "'but I am not at all afraid. "'What on earth has got into this lovely little head?' I made offer to take it between my two hands, as I had been allowed to do once or twice, when apparently falling back in health, but it seemed to prefer its own support just now. You must be aware, if you will take the trouble to think for a minute about that, that I cannot remain here in this sort of way, living upon a perfect stranger, although she is goodness and kindness itself, and running into debt in a country place like this just because I have got no money.' The only thing for me is to find out my father. He may be delighted to receive me now, and I may even be able to help him there. Miss Parslow has promised most kindly to lend me quite money enough to get to Glasgow. I must write to my father by this evening's post, and then I shall be able to start to-morrow. Only I must let him know what train I am likely to arrive by, for his time is always occupied. A very nice program. I exclaimed as she smiled or tried to smile at her own powers of arrangement. But if you please, Miss Fairthorne, what am I to do? You must not ask me, she said, turning away. There are so many things for you to do. Soon you will be able to be at work again. And if you don't like that, you can marry someone with plenty of money and keep racehorses. I dare say that is a nice life for those who like it. "'Cannot make out a word of this,' I answered. "'People with money and racehorses, "'and going to Glasgow by the train all night. 
do try to tell me, dear, what is it all about. It is only natural that I should go to my father when nobody wants me. I am not blaming anyone. You must not imagine that. I have only myself to blame for believing that I was a great deal more than I was. When nobody wants you. Oh, Kitty, Kitty, I must be gone off my head again, and that is why you want to run away from me. Look at me honestly and say that it is so. I would rather give you up, dear, and go mad by myself than marry you if that has once got into your mind. She looked at me with terror and deep amazement and then fell into my arms and threw her own around me and put up her lips as a cure for every evil. How can you say such wicked things? She whispered as soon as I allowed her sweet lips room. You can have no idea what I am. If you suppose that I should ask whether you are off your head or on it, when once I had given all my heart to you, but you must not have anybody else in your head. As if I ever could. Oh, but yes, you might. I should like to know who it could be, then. As if there were anyone in all the world fit to hold a candle to my own kitty. There is a much prettier girl in this very place, if she did not stick her elbows out so sadly as she walks, and put her heels on the ground before her toes, and if she had not got, well, not quite green eyes. Somebody else has green eyes, I should say, if they were not as blue as heaven. Sally Chalker? Why, I would not touch her with a pair of tongs, and if I did, Sam Henderson would take the poker to me. Kit, can you assure me, upon your word of honor, that there is nothing between you and Miss Chalker? No, I can't, because there is the whole world between us. And what is more than ten times the whole world to me, a certain little kitty, who has no fault whatever, except that she is desperately jealous? Jealous, indeed! You must never think that. I hope I have a little too much faith in you she said as she came and coaxed me with her hand, making me tremble with her love and loveliness. But I said, Confess, or I will never let you go. And she looked up and laughed and whispered, Well then, perhaps, but only ever such a wee bit. Miss Chalker's ears must have tingled after that, for I called her a vulgar and commonplace girl, which was not at all true, and a showy, dressy thing, and I know not what, until Kitty came warmly to the rescue, for she seemed to like her very greatly all of a sudden, and found out that she walked quite gracefully. Then I took the hateful Bradshaw, and tied a flat stone in it, and flung it over the tops of the trees into the mole. And when we went in, as the dinner bell rang, for Miss Parslow kept fashionable hours now, that good lady looked very knowing, and asked with a smile which was meant to be facetious, whether I had seen Miss Chalker lately. I saw her sticking her elbows out down the street and putting her heels to the ground before her toes, I answered, and true enough it was, though I had never observed those little truths before. Miss Parslow stared, and Kitty gave me such a glance that I resolved to have honorable amends or do worse. You won't have much more chance of running down our local bells, said my aunt as she handed me a letter. Mr. Henderson passed in his dog-cart just now, to see the young lady who does such dreadful things, and he kindly brought this letter from your uncle to me. He seems in a great hurry. How unreasonable men are! 
I think he might have come and paid his respects to Miss Fairthorn, even if he did not think me worthy of that honor. Read it aloud. He is a diamond, no doubt. But I think he should be treated as the Koh-i-Noor has been. Knowing Uncle Corney's style, I read without surprise. Dear madam, Kit has had quite time enough to get well. I'm tired of being here all by myself, and I want him in the garden for at least three weeks before he is married, which I mean him to be then, if Miss Fairthorne will kindly agree to it. Placed as she is, she will see the sense of that, for it is the only way to make her safe. And I wish her to be married here at Sunbury in our old church, where I have always had a pew. I shall send the tax cart for Kit to-morrow, and he will arrange with the lady to come before Sunday to Widow Cutthams, where I will take uncommonly good care that nobody molests her. On Sunday the bands will be read for the first time with Miss Fairthorne's full permission, and nobody else's so far as I care. We shall hope for the honor of your presence when the young people are joined together. Thanking you, madam, for your kindness to my nephew, and with my best respects, I am faithfully yours, Cornelius Orchardson. Well, my dear Kitty, said my aunt when I had finished, he disposes of you as calmly as if you were a bushel of apples or a sack of potatoes. I thought it was the lady's place to fix the auspicious day. You cannot expect a bachelor to be at home among such questions. I came to my love's rescue, for she knew not what to say, and was blushing and looking down, and wondering what to make of it. But I must go to-morrow if he sends for me. If old Spanker came for nothing, I should never hear the last of it. My uncle has heard something which we do not know of. He is prompt and to the purpose, but I never knew him rash. I see, I see. Miss Parslow's voice was much subdued, for she loved a bit of mystery and saw tokens of it here. Don't let us talk about it now, until we've had our dinner. Kit's last bachelor dinner here. We'll have a bottle of champagne to make us laugh a little at this peremptory wedlock. Your uncle is a curious man, but if it comes to that, all men are very curious beings. And ladies are so, in the other sense, and the active one of the word, but we are never known to complain of that. Of course you never have any secrets. Take your everlasting in to dinner, and I will follow you. All the world will have to do that by and by, if you only keep up this high mark of constancy and devotion. Kitty smiled at me, and I smiled at Kitty, for we knew that any lower mark might do for other people. Lofty and good as she was, my aunt could scarcely be expected to see things thus. A lady who has never been up a ladder is afraid of her skirts, even more than of her head. Aunt Parslow was not at all straight-laced, for she had given up caring about her figure now. But she did think that Kitty and I were almost too much wrapped up in one another, and perhaps that was why, in her feminine style, she had brought Miss Chalker, or vainly tried to bring her, in between us. On the following day the spring cart arrived with Celsey Bill's biggest boy sitting up to drive, and away I went, with nothing truly settled but everything left elastic, as happens nearly always when the women have their way. I promised to bring Uncle Corney to reason, as the ladies viewed that substance, and to come back the next day but one, if wet bandages enabled the old horse to do it again. 
He was wiry enough, but his wire was stiff and some of the connections rickety. "'Kit, you are a fool,' Mr. Orcherson said as soon as he had done the outside talk. "'Do you mean to have that girl or not?' I assured him that I hoped quite as warmly and wholly to marry my beautiful darling, as I did to be alive for the purpose of doing it, now that the Lord has restored my health. "'Then look alive,' he answered, "'or you will never do it. She is not safe even where she is.' I am not going to tell you what I know, because you would think me fanciful. Only I say that if it was my case, I would not lose a day that is not demanded by manners and decency. You have her father's consent and hers. You are surrounded by wily foes. I have explained everything to Mr. Golightly. He is a sensible man, and he does not care twopence for Miss Coldpepper, for she never gives a sixpence she can help towards the church." Widow Cutham will take fourteen shillings a week, including coals and candles. Two weeks done properly will make three Sundays, and you will be both in the parish. I have got an old door which I mean to put up to keep people from landing in her garden, and I defy them to get into the house from the street. I believe they don't know where your kitty is at present, but they will find out, and what can that old maid with all her lapdogs do to protect her? If you mean your kitty to be ever Mrs. Kit, you must look sharp and no mistake. I was much surprised at his urgency, but could get no more reasons out of him. Being equally urged by love and strong distrust of coming dangers, I did not lose a single day, but wrote to Miss Parslow by the very next post, because she required, and indeed deserved, to have a voice in all we did. When I took the young horse on the following day, for old Spanker found himself a little stiff and brought back my darling to her beloved Sunbury, where she had made up her mind to dwell. Widow Cutham received her with curtsies and smiles and a very strong sense of her own importance, for the whole village now was on tiptoe about us, and everybody seemed to take our side. But if I stopped to tell a thousandth part of what was said, I should never get married, which is the main point." It must not be supposed that my kitty all this time had neglected her dear father. She had written to him several times from Leatherhead, enclosing a note or two from Miss Parslow, as well as a few little bills for soft goods, and he had replied in the most affectionate manner and enclosed some cash. This encouraged her now to write for more, and he behaved most handsomely, considering how the other party had been making boot upon the products of his brain but he was a true philosopher, and money to him was not the motive power of life, nor even the shaft, but only the lubricator. He promised to be with us if he could, and his wife being still away in North Wales, there seemed to be no sound reason why he should fear to come to London. Indeed, it seemed natural that he should come, before leaving England upon his long cruise, for the Archytas, as the ship was called, had now been completed in every detail, and was trying her engines at Greenock, and so we hope to see him upon the blissful day. End of chapter 33